0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate, where this month, prompted by the NFT bubble, we're butting into the off-again, on-again romance between art and money. And if you're not quite sure what the NFT bubble was, you've arrived at exactly the right place at exactly the right time, which is possibly less remarkable if you've just downloaded the podcast, but hang in there anyway, because we have a panel who not only know what the initials NFT stand for, but also whether they offer a new hope for renewal in the art world or the imminence of one-ear-splitting pop. On our panel this time, we have NCAD's Rachel O'Dwyer, a longtime researcher in the art and money tango. Hi, Rachel. Hi there, Luke. Artist researcher Ruth Catlow, who is also a principal investigator for the Blockchain Research Lab at London's Serpentine Galleries. Hi, Ruth.
1: Hi, Luke.
0: Artist Hughie O'Donoghue, whose long career as a painter has recently seen him fetch up in the world of crypto art. Good day Hughie and from the Department of computer Science at Virginia Tech Ashling Kelleher, a familiar voice to regular listeners as Culture Files' regular tech decoder good evening to you Ashling
2: Hello hello from Virginia
0: What I want to do is I, I want to ask you all one question you don't have to answer with the dollar or euro sum, but how much do you own in cryptocurrency Rachel.
3: I think I have about the equivalent of about $9 in Ethereum. That's my entire crypto wealth right there. No Bitcoin. Ruth.
1: I'm just wondering how to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, given that cryptocurrencies mean that we are now our own bank, um, if I was massively crypto wealthy, I might be putting myself in danger if I admitted to you that I had a uh ETH in my, in my wallet. What I will tell you is that I invested to play in a little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of Ether back in 2017.
0: So you're quite likely a billionaire then.
1: I was very poor then and I'm a little bit less poor now because of the huge boom. But that's, that's all I'm going to say.
0: OK, that's, that, that's incriminating enough, really. Huey, have you, have you got in there? Um, I have,
4: yes. Um, I have something that's called Ethereum. I'm not quite sure how much I've got it, of it or, or how much it's worth, but I'm working on it.
0: Ashling,
2: I have absolutely zero... <laughs> Bitcoins. <laughs> I, not only that, I think I still quite like carrying cash, which is, you know, a bit of a horse trading kind of thing. So very sad in the pandemic where it's all cashless now. Um, but no, I have no Bitcoin. Very sceptical.
0: Aisling, we, we might keep our promise early. Tell us what uh, NFTs are. This is something to do with the blockchain, but where, what are they and why why did they appear so suddenly or did they?
2: Well, the, I mean, NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. So it's a very particular type of unique part of blockchain. And specifically in the this year, about 80% of the NFT action has all happened since January. So people have got very excited. They've been around for a couple of years, four or five years um, in various forms, but really began to you know, like speculatively take off earlier on um, this year through both art and also through uh, apps and games such as the NBA Top Shots, where, uh, or Hot Shots, excuse me, where people can purchase very, very small little videos of, you know, Kevin Durant, who's my favorite um, basketball player. And what you're really purchasing is a reference to that. You know, so a lot of these NFTs are all about bragging rights, right? I, I just, it's about my ownership of this thing that I probably mightn't even look at um, or really kind of have on hand.
0: And where did they come from? White, white. The
2: internet, Luke, the <laughs> internet.
0: And that's where they still live, is it?
2: <laughs> they do, they live in the computer, did, you know did, that? Did somebody yes.
0: invent this? That's what That's what I'm getting at.
2: Well, there seems to be numerous claims for that. I think uh, recently um, you and I shared an article by Anil Dash, who's you know, a very well-known entrepreneur here in the United States, making the claim that he invented them in collaboration with uh, Jenny and Kevin McCoy several years ago, when they kind of came up with this idea that was very much oriented towards the artist. Like, how can an artist create digital art that then has a track record of where it came from so that your work won't be appropriated without permission? And that also, I think one of the things that makes it attractive to artists is the idea that every time the piece is sold on, you continue to profit from that as an artist. So if, as the piece moves on, even your children and your grandchildren will still profit from this, If where the original kind of reference still exists, that's the big problem. When it's not like uh, purchasing it and it goes to this centralized bank, your hope is the reference back to the original link Will always exist, and that's, I think, the kind of the interesting question to contemplate.
0: Ruth, Ruth Catlow, do you, do you you've been watching this area for some time and writing about NFTs for some time. Uh, do you do you share that origin story, or is there an origin story, or is this a miraculous <laughs> network effect?
1: I was I was about to say that. So, in the Telegram channels that I inhabit. I don't live in the real world. I just live in te- Telegram channels and Discord channels. That article that you were talking about caused a kind of ripple of snorts across the internet <laughs> just because the kind of like, as people claim to make the first, everyone will always have a, a kind of example of something that was very like it, that was more the first or that happened earlier. So i th- I think we have to probably credit the invention of these the kind of Ethereum-based protocols that enable NFTs, maybe to the developers of Ethereum. But then Monograph was really early into the space in terms of making, making it possible for people to make digital art scarce, which is the kind of core to this idea that we can make digital art have a kind of give it the, the same scarcity, the same rarity, the same uh, aura as a painting or a sculpture. There can only be one of the original one. And this was kind of one of the things, it's, its provenance is part of it. If you can prove that you were the person who actually owns this thing, then it's a rare thing because you are the only owner.
0: Does it emerge when art fairs and the international market becomes interested in what they call post-internet art? I think it's maybe one of those times when, when people involved in dealing art began to think, well, there's a, there's a problem here because we're talking about art that is sort of essentially network. So uh, we now have a problem if we're going to try and keep a market alive.
1: I mean I think the I think the art market has probably been in trouble for quite a while I think there's been a kind of stagnation in the art market generally like a shrinking market of collectors and buyers and you've seen that trouble rippling down into the kind of gallery system and generally the kind of art ecology overall, the art world itself garners great wealth for a few people. Meanwhile, in the world's richest cities, artists can barely scrabble a a living together. But I think there's something in networked art or artists that have grown up with the internet like myself, uh, where there's been a very kind of uneasy relationship really between the idea of art as commodity and all the other value that art might have for humanity.
0: Rachel O'Dwyer, your kind of research uh, looks a lot at this nexus of art and money, and and how the the two have become enroiled in this very strange dance. Does this area of crypto art and NFTs offer some sort of a solution to the strange explosion of uh, the the relationship between art and art and money since perhaps the nineteen eighties?
3: I guess it's kind of a solution for for who, because I suppose you know on the one hand. Blockchain, even pre NFTs, I suppose, has been proposed as a sort of a solution to new ways of kind of financializing art. I suppose, yeah, you mentioned the nineteen seventies or the nineteen eighties where you get the rise of maybe um, art investment funds, like you know the British Rail Pension Fund. You know, where following the crisis of oil, that pension fund invested, you know, part of that money in in art. So, art became sort of a hedge for volatility in other markets. And I think sort of since the financial crash we've seen sort of the rise of this idea of art as an asset class and particularly i suppose artists are sort of a derivative so artists are kind of a financial instrument that's maybe about sort of hedging your bets so for example if other sorts of things like currency become volatile post-Brexit for example that having some of your money invested in art can sort of be a way of offsetting some of that volatility and kind of spreading spreading kind of risk around definitely in the last couple of years there seems to be a rise of kind of discourse about art as an asset class so the rise of art investment funds the rise of art-backed securities so where people are using Art as sort of collateral in a loan and then the rise of things like free ports. So these kind of extra legal tax free spaces, traditionally, I suppose, duty free spaces where art can be stored indefinitely without paying duty. Uh, So they kind of work a little bit like banks for art. And so some of the first discussions, I guess, that I saw about blockchain and art were sort of positioning it within this, that uh, blockchain could be a way of uh, monetizing not just digital art, as Ruth was talking about there, so a way of creating markets for immaterial, intangible works of art that that aren't easily sold or, or transferred or, you know, from one person to another. But also, you know, there was proposals for using blockchain as a way to kind of keep track of the provenance of physical works of art. So we've heard a little bit about some of the digital companies like Monograph, for example, or Ascribe.
0: Tell us a little bit about them. Ruth mentioned them. How do they work?
3: Well, I guess Monograph was one of the first, you know, so the article you mentioned, I guess, was somebody who was working in Monograph. So I uh, I came across Kevin McCoy in 2015, so it was one of my first sort of times for thinking about blockchain in relation to art. As Ruth mentions then, uh, Kevin was an artist who was particularly interested, I suppose, in blockchain, but not necessarily that commercially interested. But they were experimenting with ways in which you could record the ownership, I guess, of digital works of art uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so it was quite limited, I guess, in what you could do. Uh, Bitcoin sort of records, you know, data about digital coins, you know, a coin being transferred from one person to the other. So that creates for the first time a sort of a form of digital scarcity. So you have a way of sort of keeping track of some sort of digital thing and how it moves from one person to another.
1: Can I Can I chip in there? Because I think it's really important that Kevin McCoy was an artist Mm. and because I think it's really easy to underestimate the role that artists and artist culture has played in the development of the technical space as well. And I just think it's worth people knowing that the McCoys had basically they're really well known, well regarded artists of the Internet age who'd already really kind of understood and made some really fantastic work that kind of used the internet as a space for production, distribution, and, and kind of uh, a new way of looking at art already. No, Sorry, you're dead Rachel. right. No, you're yeah. dead right. Yeah.
3: And I I guess... What I find interesting about monograph is you get that sort of uh, kind of experimental artistic side of it. But actually, at one point I was going through just patents for different technologies that were playing around with ways of producing digital scarcity. And Kevin McCoy's name was all over them. You know, so there was a really there's sort of a strong kind of innovation, I suppose, happening there, too. So we mentioned monograph, which kind of wasn't super commercial, I guess. Ascribe is kind of interesting because they were sort of trying to create a new form of digital rights management for digital goods. So they, you know, they weren't only just kind of recording ownership about physical works of art or music files or whatever on the blockchain. They were also sort of trying to to link that information to some kind of a centralized registry. So basically, you know, somebody can associate a digital file with a scribe and so you can say well I own the original I own this one but it still doesn't stop people from actually copying that. A scribe are kind of trying to find a way that's stopping people from also reproducing these things linking that sort of information in some ways to a centralised uh, registry but didn't really sort of manage to figure that out.
0: Because that's key in the in the sort of art world you're describing of asset class and free ports is that the artist has has left ownership of that piece of art and no is no longer benefiting from it and it's moving into a system of circulation where they won't receive any more uh, compensation from having created it
3: I guess one of the value propositions you know that people put forward around blockchain is you know you can not only associate ownership but you can also do what's called smart contracts and I guess we're hearing less about smart contracts and more about nfts right now but you know smart contracts are a way of also associating certain conditions around the sale or transfer of a work. So, for example, if you had a work uh, stored by somebody like MoneyGraph or a scribe, that maybe you could also store details such as if this work is sold on, the artist gets 10% of the resale value of that work or whatever.
1: I think it's worth saying, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's true that... All NFTs automatically grant resale rights to artists. No, no, it's that not. That no, no. I just no. mean those are
3: some conditions yeah, yeah. that you could associate. But no, I don't I think you're right. I think most of them don't have that as a condition.
1: Uh, yeah. But there's a platform called Async, which was one of the very early NFT platforms. And I think these are the things that excite me about this space, although there are many things that don't excite me about it. But one of the things that does excite me about it is the fact that artists are starting to make programmable artworks where they are setting the kind of terms and permissions of the relationships with collectors and also collaborative artworks so they might have a number of artists who are controlling different layers of a digital artwork and then deciding whether the collector can control how the layers move or what happens in the layers.
0: Well, we've been talking so far a lot about art that has been created specifically with these tools or for these tools. But, Hughie, you come from a world of galleries and uh, paint on canvases that hangs in spaces. What uh, lured you at this moment into the world of crypto art? Well, I've, I've never been um, in any way uh,
4: reluctant to try the, the new Um, My view about it really was that I would investigate it and see what what it offered and what I could understand about it. I mean, what's fairly obvious in in one sense is that there's a generational thing. A lot of younger people are looking at screens. That's how they take on information. And um, it's a huge audience. And so artists want to reach an audience. And so it was... It was something I wanted to investigate, but one of the side issues that we're talking about ownership of art, and uh, obviously art's relationship to money has always been um, nobody's ever been able to successfully separate art from money because of its its rarity. But one of the relationships between ownership is to authenticity. And authenticity is, is something that seems to be key to the conception of blockchain, that it's something that can be absolutely verified in terms of time and space, that this is an authentic piece of work by an artist. And uh, I, my view about art is that ultimately it's usually made by individuals and it, uh, it's not something that's either political or social, but it's something that is rare and it's precious. So, my view about the whole NFT thing was one, one of curiosity, really, and I thought we'll embrace it and see what it what it produces.
0: Is it is it quite? Sorry, Rachel.
3: Oh no, I just I guess I'm interested in this idea of authenticity because it seems like the ownership of the NFT itself, the actual deed, this the the certificate of ownership. What we're seeing is that ownership is becoming so much more significant than the work itself whatever form that takes maybe that's taking us off in another in a completely different direction than the one you want to go in
4: well i, do, I don't know i think i think ownership ownership and authenticity are linked i mean artists visual artists retain the copyright of their their imagery throughout their lifetime,
0: but. Uh, this... But your work can go, can go circulating, free from you, accruing value as it moves in it, and it doesn't touch you anymore. Well,
4: once you've made a piece of work, in any case, I mean, my view about it is not... A, I don't view it as stock. <laughs> I, I view it as something I, I did, made, dragged out of myself, and in a way the idea of it being absolutely documented is something that's very, very attractive to me. I mean, if the, if the lost library of Alexandria had been on the blockchain, it would be uh, extraordinary. In a way, we lose works of art constantly. And um, so the idea of, of, of this kind of um, memory which is what my work is about it interests me.
3: But a lot of the NFTs aren't even, you know, a lot of the vis- if you if you so what you're getting when you buy an NFT is like it's a URL almost, you know, you're it's a it's a piece of code that's pointing to somewhere else on the network like the pieces themselves except in a couple of rare cases actually aren't stored on the blockchain, all you get is sort of a link and What we're seeing, and I see people kind of nodding, what we're seeing is like a lot of those links are already broken. So people own NFTs and there's actually nothing to look at. And, you know, when you buy an NFT, you don't buy any, as you say, you don't buy any copyright over the image. But a lot of cases, you know, you you don't even have, have any kind of manifestation of that image. All you have is... A, a certificate of ownership, which is, I guess, where my question was was coming at, where it seems like ownership itself is is, is all we're interested in now, and that maybe as a ownership, as a sort of a financial instrument, as opposed well, to. Well,
4: that's t- fascinating, because I think ownership is not the thing that, that interests me. It's authenticity, and uh, the idea that you can trace something, as I understand it, on the blockchain, you can trace uh, through time,
0: the authenticity is a, is a kind of interesting question because in in one sense what you're having here you know there's a certain amount of discussion that the painting exists in a gallery system and all the underpinnings of that system give it its sense of autis- authenticity or aura and what you're doing or what's happening here perhaps is a replacement of that uh, of that gallery system with something new that doesn't provide aura in exactly the same way well, it's,
4: uh, certainly, uh, it, one of the things that seems to be a sort of um, appealing offshoot of it is it, it's a kind of removal of some of the gatekeepers of uh, of art. It's, a, it's um, skipping round them in a way that uh, what what I mean by that are the people in the art world, uh, visual art world, who really. Have a, a, a huge role because they they control what people see, what people are allowed to see, what people are, what they're told is important. So this this new medium seems to offer a way around that, and uh, that's that is something that interests me. Do you think that's a, a
0: kind of utopian or not?
4: I don't know is my honest answer, um, but I do know that art is about freedom. And it's not about gatekeeping. It's not about telling people you can't do that, you can't think that. So, um, th-
1: but we have had the internet for twenty five years. I mean, that people have been free to make and distribute their images or whatever their art form. Maybe it's a social or relational art form. So, actually, the only innovation here is around ownership. So it isn't. I, I'm yeah. I'm not. I'm unconvinced. And, and doesn't it, yeah, doesn't it
3: seem like um, traditional actors like Christie's, for example? I was curious what people thought. It seems to me like they play a really, really significant role in actually legitimizing these slightly scammy <laughs> uh, NFT deals. You know that they actually the traditional you know actors that people recognise are, are really significant in in these
0: systems. Definitely, when the coverage uh, of the Beeple auction mentioned Christie's, that seemed to legitimise it in a way. I mean, I guess one of the things we're seeing here is Ashling, is that there is a kind of kinship between this disruption of the art world and disruptions of food deliveries or disruptions of the music business. Maybe it's not really creating new value, but just shifting where who owns the work.
2: Yeah, I mean it's probably a race to the bottom with all of this. I mean, and who who's in there first? Like like the power laws of the rich get richer. Whoever has started in there, they're the ones who are going to benefit from it. I wanted to to. Go back to a, a point that Hughie was making, because I was curious about an artist that we've spoken about on the show several times, Ben Grosser, who's done you know, a lot of work that's kind of critical of machine learning or computer vision or the kind of the transactional nature of social media. And he has a new piece out um, called Tokenize This, where, you know, you can create an NFT that it is immediately self-destructs. Right. So that it generates a thing. And then, the, like, as Rachel was saying, the link is immediately broken. And he's doing this as a way, as a commentary on, like, must we monetize everything? And can't you just leave us have the art to ourselves? And I think his his pieces are very accessible in trying to get across to people the idea of, like, how does this thing work and like, let's kind of point, Rachel used the word scammy. It is. I mean, this is like a Ponzi scheme. Like, you know, like Bernie Madoff could only dream of this. And it's, it's not
0: a neutral Ponzi scheme. I suppose that's the point about, you, you know, you could critique Bren Grosser by saying, well, actually, one of the things, and it ha- we haven't talked about it yet, is the environmental impact of, of uh, the blockchain, which is enormous and, and at the moment is not at all c- accounted in, in NFTs or, or other blockchain technologies. Tell us a bit about that, Ashley.
2: Well, I think let's not put all the blame on NFTs, right? There's the NFTs, particularly the art world, are such a small part of the ecosystem of, of Ethereum and what it is that people are mining and creating. Obviously, I mean, it's quite entertaining when you look at ways to see like, how do we calculate the energy usage? And it ranges from people saying, well, it's like all of Libya. You're like, okay, random country. Okay, or it's like two weeks of the average European's you know, household usage will generate one thing. And like, it's very challenging. I actually tried to work out how much is it? How many kilowatts is this really generating? And, you know, is it any worse than you getting on a flight, you know, and just taking off anywhere? That kind of destroys all of this kind of carbon offset. I think there are movements, if artists have come together to try and create either, I mean, it's a bit of a, another scam is the idea of, you, oh, well, it's carbon offset or it's going to be generated from renewable energy or clean energy. Um, the idea is more where is the motivation for people to move away from that and to participate in the green energy unless they move from this point of work, you know, to kind of the idea of all solving these problems as being the way that Ethereum itself works to a fundamentally different way of thinking of, of blockchain. And there are alternatives out there but the challenge is to get either everybody to change to that or to make that a worthwhile proposition.
1: I mean I I think it's not hyperbolic to say that there has been a battle raging over the question of energy usage for NFTs in the art world especially amongst those artists who grew up with internet art and tactical media and the idea of Thinking politically, like thinking politically about infrastructure, in the same way that artists had thought critically about the institution of the art, all the institutions of the art world.
3: What I find really interesting about your work in further field, Ruth, though, is it's not actually that some of these works take place on the blockchain. It's almost as though, you know, because things like money, obviously, are their technologies of cooperation, their technologies of trust. And in some ways, then having discussions about things like blockchain created these spaces for broader discussions about what we might call like off-chain participation. How do we trust each other? How do we collaborate? What draws me to your work actually is is the way in which, you know, the blockchain sort of fomented that kind of conversation, I guess, about these things that you don't really need a blockchain, but actually maybe we needed to have conversations about how we trust each other or support each other
1: yeah uh, that's really nice to hear because I'm I guess it's worth saying Furtherfield runs a gallery in the middle of a park in North London it's always been really important to us to bring people together in physical spaces to experience work and so I think what you're saying Rachel is really important and sometimes I forget to say it but it's this business of using the social spaces that sit around art to think through the systems that we live within in this kind of emerging technical space and and the importance of finding ways to bring more people into these conversations. Because honestly, the the world has been very wavy for me since blockchain because it made me realise I didn't really understand what money was. Being a kind of bit of a hardened lefty, I kind of had a, I kind of, I would scowl at ideas of money for many years. But I I don't feel like that anymore. But I do feel like money is very mysterious. It's a social medium and we all need to understand it better.
0: I don't think we've completely solved the relationship between art or money or even got a crowbar in between the two of them. They're still at each other. But thank you all very much for, for giving it a go this evening. Thank you very much, Rachel O'Dwyer, Hugh O'Donoghue, Ruth Catlow and Ashlyn Kelleher. Bye, everyone.
1: Thanks a million. Bye. 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 Thank nice you. to meet you all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: Enjoying your nice company, you.
4: everybody. Thank you. Yeah, really nice.
1: Really interesting conversation.
4: <laughs> we haven't solved the meaning of life, but we're working on it. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs>